Good to see you tonight. Glad that you're able to come back as we continue in our study of Ephesians. Tonight, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 22, as we consider diversity in the midst of unity. And uh, I begin by saying that one must understand that there is diversity in the midst of unity. While Christians are one, we are not all exactly the same. While we all work together, we do not have the same function. And as the physical body, parts work together but have different functions, so too the spiritual body works together, but the individual parts have different functions as well. So our theme tonight is we consider how diversity in the body of Christ contributes to unity. Not only can we have unity in the midst of diversity, but the diversity actually contributes to the unity, and that's what we want to consider this evening. So first of all, God has given a spiritual gift to every believer, Ephesians 4, 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. That spiritual gift differs both in form and in degree. Ephesians 4, 7 it says that, uh, that grace is given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. That measure is that he doles it out, that he measures it out, that he imparts to us that gift in different degrees. Not every individual has the same gift or function. I think we readily understand that from Corinthians and other places. But in addition, those who do have the same gift do not share them in the same degree. Some are more gifted than others. Not everyone has the same prowess or ability in the exercise of their gifts. Uh, that should not create a competition among us, but that's just a reality that one person may be able to exercise their gift in a way that another person is not capable of exercising their gift. Uh, we all might have the gift of teaching, let's say, but among those gifted teachers, there'll be some that are better teachers, more effectual teachers than are others. So there is this diversity even in the midst of those that have the same gift. The Apostle Paul was used in a greater way than were the other apostles. Uh, Paul refers to himself as uh, the lesser of the apostles because of the fact that uh, he came along later after the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he began as a persecutor of the church. But as we just think about church history, and while the other apostles, of course, were significant, uh, but God used Paul in a way that was different than the way in which he used Peter, which was different than the way in which he used John, and certainly different from the way that he used Thomas and others. Uh, one can just contemplate the scriptures themselves and realize that Paul was used to author far more books of scripture than were any of the other apostles. So even though they shared 
the same kinds of responsibilities and they shared the same gift and even the same function as an apostle, yet they served God in a greater capacity and in varying degrees. So thirdly, the gift giving of gifts are in keeping with Christ's triumph over all entities. Ephesians 4.8, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Brian Chapel, in his commentary, writes this concerning that particular statement, and I quote, our bondage to Satan, sin, and death is itself made captive to the powers of Christ so that there is no hold over us. Rather, we have been captivated by Christ's love and are pictured as trailing in his victory parade as he ascends to heaven. The further implication of the apostles' words indicating that the gifts are now possess, uh, uh, gifts we now possess are connected to Christ's victory and the defeat of sin is that the gifts he dispenses to us are his means of restraining the power of sin now. In other words, that God uses these gifts that God gives to us in order to restrain sin in our lives and the lives of, of others and ultimately on the face of this earth. And we'll get into that a little bit more in just a moment. John MacArthur writes concerning the second half of that verse, uh, uh, excuse me, verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into lower regions, the earth? There are a number of different ways in which commentators have taken the statement that he descended into the lower regions, the earth. As it's translated in ESV, you can see that it takes the lower regions as meaning the earth. There are others that take the lower regions as mean the interior of the earth. Um, but uh, John MacArthur says this, and I think this is, this is helpful, and I quote, to understand the phrase, the lower parts of the earth, we need only to examine its use elsewhere in scripture. In Psalm 63, verse 9, it has to do with death, being related to the falling by the sword. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, a similar phrase, the heart of the earth refers to the belly of a great fish where the prophet Jonah was kept. In Isaiah 44, 23, the phrase refers to the created earth, Psalm 139.15 uses it in reference to the womb of a woman where God is forming a child. The sum of these uses, and the bold is mine, the sum of these uses indicates that the phrase relates to the created earth as a place of life and death. In the majority of the uses, it appears in contrast to the highest heavens, end quote. Uh, so when it's talking about ascending to the lower earth, it, uh, I take it as meaning that in his incarnation, he came down from heaven, came to this lower place, which is earth, and suffered and died, and then rose again and ascended to the heavenly places. In Christ's triumph, he is over all things. Verse 10, he who ascended is the one who has ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. That he might fill all things most likely refers to his control over all things and his influence is particularly seen in this age 
in working through the church. For this picks up on what was earlier said in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 and following. That he worked, this is referring to the power, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, gave him as head over all things to the church, which means he has leadership over the church, which is his body, that referring to the church, the church is also referred to as the body of Christ, which is his body. And now this, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So number two, thus the church is to be incarnational. Through us, the presence of Christ is to be exhibited. So Christ dwells in us, and he's given us the responsibility of exercising our influence upon this world. And so one of the most significant ways in which Christ accomplishes his kingdom work is through his people, the church. We have the responsibility of carrying out God's will on this earth and We are instruments of his grace in communicating the gospel to others and establishing his kingdom and bringing about a transformation of our culture and our life. God intends to work through us. And so we are the, as I say, the incarnation of Christ, if you will, meaning that we are his representative. So for To accomplish this purpose, God gave individuals to the church. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So here we find that God gave not only spiritual gifts to individuals, but also God gave individuals themselves as a gift to the church. So we have kind of a play on words. And that is that God gifts individuals. And in turn, those gifted individuals are a gift themselves to the people of God and to the world. Thus the one who has this spiritual gift is seen to be a source of God's blessing and a gift to the church. So we are to appreciate, we are to respect, we are to, to value Uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we are to view them as God's gift to us, that we are to view ourselves as blessed of God because of those individuals that God has brought among us. And we are to give thanks and praise to God for his goodness in giving us the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers. And so see, we're to be thankful for God for those gifted people that God brings among us. That is part of the unity. That's a part of the appreciation of the body of Christ, that we have this appreciation and respect for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Number five. The purpose that God gave the individuals to the church that are cited is to ready the people of God to do the work of God. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. 
So these individuals are to use their gifts to be a spiritual benefit for others and enabling them to carry on the work of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes to Timothy, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So here is this ongoing process as Paul equips Timothy. Timothy is to equip others who then in turn can equip still others. That is how the process works. And I would just point out to you in verse 2 of 2 Timothy chapter 2, where it says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men, and notice the verb tense here, who will, future, be able to teach others also. It's significant that it does not have that in the present tense. It doesn't say, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust the faithful men who are able to teach others also. One might expect that that's what, what it says, but it doesn't. The emphasis is on these are people who will in the future be able to teach others also. So this process of entrusting the word to them is the development. It, it isn't just handing off, but it's the maturing, it is the discipleship, it is the mentorship, it is the honing of their gifts, it is making them even more ready to be sharing the gospel with others. And so this mentorship, if you will, is to be taking place not only among a certain few, but the body of Christ as a whole. Now, we're looking in this passage primarily at teaching gifts, but there are many gifts in the scripture, and we should all be seeking to develop whatever gift it is that God has given to us, and those that have the same gift ought to be mentoring and helping people in the development and use of that gift so that the body of Christ grows, which we will talk about in just a moment. So the goal of the gifts... A, the first goal is to make the church stronger, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, uh, for building up the body of Christ. So that gives us an insight into what the work of the ministry is. Included in that work of ministry is building up the body of Christ. It's important that we understand that we all are a part of this work. We all have a work to do and together we accomplish God's purpose. It isn't any one person that this work is dependent upon. It's dependent upon all of Christ's people. And that work is, is uh, then accomplished and goes forward. But this building up the body of Christ, number one, that the church would have more depth, uh, like a, a stronger bench in baseball, uh, when uh, I'm trying to find an illustration here, but uh, that, that was the best I could come up with. You, uh, you realize that uh, in a pro baseball, you have a 40-man roster. 
you have 40 people and uh, nine people of which are playing at any given time. But the goal is that the people who sit on the bench are ready to come in. They're equipped. They're able. They can uh, take over if someone falls or uh, is injured or is having a bad day, whatever the case may be. And for the team to be strong, you not only have to have the nine players, but you really need the 40 to have a good, strong team. And the aspect here is that in the church, you're going to have those that are leaders within the church. You're going to have those that are more gifted than others. But the idea is that we should all be working at our particular gift to make it a stronger gift, that we're better able to utilize that gift, that we are better able to function in the body of Christ. We want to be growing in whatever level we find ourselves in, and that is, again, part of this unity of accepting what is our role and accomplishing it to the honor and glory of God. So number two, that there would be more workers and better enabled workers for the cause of Christ. We should be raising up ever more workers and workers that are better able to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. The second goal is to bring everyone to a place of spiritual adulthood. Everyone to a place of spiritual adulthood, Ephesians 4.13, until we all attain to the unity of faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. That begins with a mutual understanding of the Word of God. So what does maturity look like? Well, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, till we all get to the place of understanding the truth of God's word. <clears throat> that leads to a proper understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So we're talking about doctrinal purity here, but not doctrinal purity just for the sake of purity. It's not just so that we dot every I and cross every T, but so that we have a proper understanding of who Christ is, that we understand that he is the Son of God. Do we understand that that means that he's the second member of the Trinity? We realize that he is the God-man. He's the mediator between God and man. We understand that his death results in a bodily resurrection so that we know that Jesus is risen, that he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, that he ever lives to make intercession for us. We are to understand who Jesus is and what our relationship is to him, and in so doing, then impart that knowledge to still others who hopefully will place their faith and trust in Lord Jesus Christ and grow in their allegiance to him as well. So that leads to conducting ourselves as adults. Verse 13. Till we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. This is all talking about development. Development. And we are to move from a childish faith into an adult manhood. Maturity. Hebrews chapter 5 gives us some insight into what is meant by maturity. Hebrews 5.11 says about this, we have much to say 
and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So part of this maturity is getting to the place where we're ready to be teachers rather than needing to be taught. That doesn't necessarily refer to, to teachers in the, the formal sense, but we should get to the place of maturity where, where we're able to explain the truths of God's word to others, that we can impart them to our children, that we can explain to our children the gospel, and we can mentor, we can develop, we can mature our children, that we're not just relying upon Sunday school to do that. We're not just relying upon the church service to do that, but that each one of us in our home is bringing up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so that we're able to have family devotions, that, that fathers can lead their, their household, that they can open the scriptures and teach accurately the word of God. We're talking about different levels here of teaching, but all of us need to progress to the place where we're able to share the truths of God's word to others. <clears throat> Back to Hebrews 5, verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, and you notice this takes time. We don't expect people to mature Overnight, there is a, a growing process. We expect babes to act like babes. We expect infants to act like infants. We expect children to act like children. We expect teens to act like teens. And we expect adults to act like adults. But it takes time. And so too, in the body of Christ, in this maturing process, it takes time. You can be spiritual overnight. You can turn from being a part of Satan's kingdom to a, being a part of Christ's kingdom in a moment. You can accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. You can be spiritual. Your sins can be forgiven. You can be right with God. You can be living a life that's pleasing to God in a moment. But you can't be spiritually mature in a moment. You can't grasp all of the truths of God's word in a moment. You can't get to a place of spiritual discernment. You can't get to the place where you're ready now to sit down and instruct somebody else in the gospel and an understanding of God's truth. That takes time. That takes time. But over a period of time, we ought to be ready to do that. Uh, I had an interesting situation many years ago, uh, well over 40 years ago, I was uh, given the privilege to be an assistant pastor in my home church. And so I, I'd grown up in the church, and everybody knew me, and uh, I became an assistant pastor, much like Pastor Cruz here in, uh, in my home church. And one of the responsibilities I had was uh, I led the singing and, and uh, conducted the, the services. And um, one Sunday night, I was calling on a person for prayer, and there was a, a gentleman that was in the church. He was uh, the father of a good friend of mine, 
And he'd been in the church as long as I could remember. Uh, he was in the church before I was born. And I called on him and said, uh, after uh, this next hymn, Brother so-and-so is going to pray. I looked up to amazement as I was singing the hymn, I watched him walk out the back door. And he left, and he went home. And uh, I hadn't asked him ahead of time about uh, the, if I may call upon him to pray. That was a bad move on my part. And so as soon as the church was over, I got in my car and I went to his house and wondered what happened. Did he get sick or what, what was the situation? And and uh, he said to me, he said, uh, I have never prayed in public. This man was a Christian for well over 40 years. He said, I've never prayed in public. I, I can't pray in public. And I apologized. I said, I should have asked. I, I didn't realize. I, I said, I hadn't even really thought about the fact I'd never heard you pray. And then he said, don't you apologize. He said, I'm the one who needs to apologize. He said, why can't I pray after 40 years? The thought is that, that we need to be maturing. We, we need to be growing. We, we need to be developing in our relationship to Jesus Christ. And God uses these gifts in order to mature the body of Christ. Ephesians 5.13, bottom of page 4. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. So when we're talking about the spiritual mature, we're talking about people who are ready to eat solid food, as it were. So what does that imagery conjure to mind? Well, first of all, a mature Christian is one that can stand upon his or her own to feet. Mature Christians are those who are able to feed themselves and not be totally dependent upon pre-digested food. Verse 12, for by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So here the milk is the very basic principles of the word of God. The simple things. The gospel. Who is Jesus? Who is God? What is sin? And it says, when you ought to be able to teach that to others, you are still in need of someone teaching you. So one of our goals ought to be that I'm not just totally dependent upon someone spoon-feeding me the Word of God. Uh, I would say, you know, there are, there's great value in devotionals. I still read devotional material. We can always learn, and we ought to always be learning. But we also need to develop in our own Christian walk to the place where I can sit down and read the Bible and understand it. That I can feed myself, as it were. That, that I can comprehend what the Word of God says, evaluate my life, make application. That doesn't happen as soon as we are saved. We need to grow. 
But we do need to grow. We do need to get to that place where we're able to sit down and understand the scriptures and have meaningful interaction with them. And we do need to get to the place where we're able to at least share, as I say, the gospel with someone else, our children. We shouldn't have to get on the phone every time our child has a question about a Bible story and call up their Sunday school teacher and say, would you mind ask, answering Johnny's question about Solomon and his prayer for wisdom? We ought to be able to answer Johnny's questions. We ought to be able to, to mature our own children, to develop them. So this is the process that is to be taking place. <clears throat> C, a mature Christian is one who has the teeth and stomach for the meat of the word. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature. So we ought to get to the place where we're able to handle the meat, as it were, of God's word. So the meat, according to Hebrews, is, is going beyond the basic principles of Scripture, but looking at the deep truths of God's word so that we're able, as I say, to stomach it. We're able to accept it. Um, I want to commend you tonight because tonight, this morning, is really the meat of the word. Uh, we go beyond the simple things of the scripture and, and try to look at them in, in some measure of depth, okay? And so the fact that you welcome such teaching, that you abide such teaching, says a great deal. It's also a challenge because as I look out, I recognize that there are little children here. There are teens here. There are adults here. There, there are people who have been saved for years and have read their Bible through many, many years. And there are people here that have been saved less than a year. So it's a challenge to present the Word of God in such a way that you are feeding those that are mature and really understand the Word and you're not choking <laughs> Somebody who's newly saved and says, what in the world are they talking about? I can't get a thing out of it. Uh, so, you know, to, to try to nurture people along and develop is, is a task, but it is one that, that we ought to be ready for and actually uh, desire. D. A mature Christian is one who knows the difference between truth and error, Hebrews 5.14. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. To distinguish good from evil. This morning, we found that very same phrase in relationship to Solomon. And Solomon prayed for wisdom so that he could be able to discern good from evil. Here we find it again. And so that's why we all need wisdom to be able to discern right from wrong, to, under, to discern sound teaching 
from that which is false teaching, that which is in keeping with God's word, and that which is not in keeping with God's word. E, conversely, a spiritual child is one who is easily confused and misled in their beliefs. Verse 14, so it would be no longer be children. Now here's a definition of what it means to be a child in the faith. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. So that when somebody hears something that is in conflict with what they have been taught, they know how to resolve that conflict. They're, they're able to say, well, that's not right, and know why it's not right. To understand what the truth is and, and what the doctrines truly say and what they don't say. Uh, that is a responsibility that, that we all have. So that we have this unity of the faith, so that we believe the same things, that we're promoting the same truth. The spiritually immature or children are not discerning in those that they follow. For not only are they carried away by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So there is talking about false teachers and the methods that they use, human cunning, that is they, they use human wisdom and it appeals to those who don't know the word because it seems right, it's in keeping, it's, it's that which is politically and culturally correct. It's what the world thinks. And so people teach that which is in keeping with popular psychology or what the world teaches or what the culture says, and they go along with it. Or those that are crafty, and to be, to be crafty is, is to sneak in that which is false, like the serpent to Eve who caused her to question, did God say you should not eat from every tree? Is that really what God said? These are people that, that get others to doubt, to question the word of God, to question the authority of scripture, to question the validity of the truth. Is the truth even knowable? Can you even know what the word of God says? It's so confusing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then those that are deceitful, that they are liars, that they say things that aren't true. People that are that are writing books and saying they went to heaven and they've seen this or that, or they went to hell and they saw this or that. And people just thrive on these books and they read them and, and they're lies. That, that didn't happen. It's false. Well, we shouldn't even give any time to such garbage. We should just dismiss it out of hand and just know that that is wrong. Realize that there are going to be those that are, that are wolves in sheep clothing. There are going to be those that, that identify with the body of Christ who, who say they are believers, but teach that which is blatantly false. And let me just say, you, you can teach falsehood without being a false teacher. Uh, you can be ignorant. You can teach things that are wrong simply because you don't know better. Well, we ought to be teachable, we ought to be approachable, we ought to grow so that we teach less error and more truth. 
But when we're talking about false teachers, we're talking about people who knowingly, knowingly go against what the Word of God says. Contradict what the Word of God says. And the reasons for that are just myriad. Many times it's people just simply don't want to submit to it. It goes against their grain. It goes against their own sense of what's right or wrong. It goes against their freedom. They don't want to believe that because it means then I've got to change my life. It means like I have to live differently. The mature believer is able to identify and stay away from this false teaching, this error, these things that are wrong. Number four, in contrast to those who teach with a craftiness in schemes, we are to be teaching the truth in genuine concern. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, it's comparison. Those who are deceitful as opposed to those who are speaking the truth in love, in love for others and in love for God. That's the motivation, and they're speaking the truth. Paul is a good example of a person, of course, who speaks the truth. And so Paul gives this testimony in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 concerning his own teaching. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 1 and following. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Uh, He wasn't going to let persecution and the rejection of God's word slow him down. Verse 3, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. So there is the first characterization of people who speak the truth in love. They are more concerned with what God thinks than what people think. They are more concerned about gaining God's approval than the people to whom they speak. Study to show yourself approved Unto God. Unto God. It's a recognition that we have to stand before God for what we teach. And so we're not out to please people, we're out to please God. This is his word, and so we are saying what he would have us to say. Verse 5. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know. So he didn't just butter people up. Uh, He just didn't manipulate people. He just didn't say what people wanted to hear. Nor were the pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. He wasn't seeking reputation. He wasn't wanting to be viewed as knowledgeable. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So this is the kind of way in which we are to be teaching the truth. Five, in contrast to false teachers, we're not to be making followers of ourselves, but followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 4.15. Rather than speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So this development 
is not in order to make followers of ourselves, but to make followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, all too often, unfortunately, people are about building their own kingdom than they are about building Christ's kingdom. It, it's about themselves rather than about Christ. Uh, in uh, the book of Corinthians, Paul talks about the church that is divided. It's not a unified church. And one of the things that demonstrates the division that existed in Corinth was some say I'm Paul, some say I'm Apollos, some say I'm of Christ. They each were following their own and they were exalting that particular person. We are not to be following people, we're to be following Christ. And so Paul said, be ye followers of me as I follow Christ. We do have the responsibility of being an example, but we're always pointing others to Christ. So 1 Thessalonians 2.10, you are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. So it wasn't about pleasing Paul, it was about pleasing God. It's about pleasing God. Who calls us in his own kingdom and glory. And if you remember, chapter 4 begins with this prayer that we might walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And so we have this same terminology in 1 Thessalonians, this development of spiritual maturity in following Christ. When Christ's headship, leadership, governance is properly acknowledged, the body functions well. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, the Christ. What does it mean to be into him? Well, it's in relationship to him. We are functioning as we should under the direction and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our authority. And so the teacher is always pointing to the ultimate authority, which is Jesus Christ. The person who teaches the word of God should never be making themselves the authority. It shouldn't be, believe this because I'm telling you this. The authority is God and his word. The only reason you should ever believe what someone is teaching you from the word of God is because that's what the word of God says. And so it becomes the responsibility, it becomes the duty of every teacher of the Word of God, at whatever level that is, formally or informally, that you are teaching others what God's Word says. So when you're teaching your children at home, when you're having family devotions, and they ask a question, it's not because you said it. It's because of what your authority is in the home. But we have the responsibility of opening the word of God and helping them to see this is what God's word says.
Because ultimately, we want everybody to be able to do that. We want everybody to be able to open the word of God and be able to say, this is what God's word says. Paul puts it in Corinthians of saying, so that we would not be the source of your faith, but your faith would be in the Lord Jesus Christ. That you don't have the confidence in the person you hear. You have the confidence in the scriptures. You have confidence in what the Bible says. So number seven, the picture of the body of Christ, the church functioning as it should. A, when the body of Christ is functioning properly, every individual is keeping the body together. Verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. So number one, the tendons and the ligaments bind the flesh to the skeletal frame. Thus, when the people of God are functioning properly, they are staying connected to Christ and one another. That's what spiritual maturity does. That's what unity does. It, it maintains the connection to the head, contains connection to one another. B, when the body of Christ is functioning as it should, each individual is doing their part. When each part is working properly, so that we are all using our gift, we are all involved, we are all participating in the work of God. See, when the body of Christ is functioning properly, people are building each other up as opposed to tearing one another down. Makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We are edifying one another, encouraging one another, helping one another, maturing one another. D, the growth that is in view is spiritual maturity, for it makes the body grow. Verse 15, rather speaking truth and love, we are to grow up in him. So the growth is not numerical growth, the growth is spiritual growth. All too often people are more concerned with the numerical growth of the church as opposed to the spiritual growth of the church. That is not to say the numerical growth of the church is irrelevant, for we want to be reaching people for the kingdom, we want to see people coming to Christ, but the real measure of a church is our spiritual development. It's our maturation. It's our ability to comprehend, live out the word of God and be able to help others understand, comprehend and live out the word of God in return. And we all function in that way in different capacities. Not everyone is going to be the formal teacher, but whatever we are doing leads to that ultimate outcome. You know, whether, you know, you take a fellowship Sunday, whether you're working in the kitchen, whether you're, you're setting up tables, when you're using your gifts, when you are offering yourself in service, you are providing an atmosphere. You, you are attributing to a church that is teaching and preaching the word of God and trying to keep people together, connected, and connected with Christ. So we ought to see that activity so that we're constantly encouraging one another, not discouraging, not pushing people away, but inviting people in and wanting to see them develop and to grow and to be patient and giving them time to grow and to develop. Hopefully we're patient with our children. 
and realize that when they're two and they're three, they're not going to be reading systematic theologies. Being patient with people who are, who are new believers and painstakingly trying to, to help them to grow and to understand. And as we do, bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. We all play a role. We all have a function. And we all should be striving towards maturity. Let's pray. Almighty God, we ask that you would help us, that you would mature us in our faith, that you would help us to understand, comprehend the word of God. You give us wisdom, as we talked about this morning, that we would be able to open your word, and that we would be able to feed ourselves, that, that we would be able to develop in our personal relationship with you, that we'd all be ready and able to help our children that have been entrusted to our care to understand the truth of God's word. We can teach our children, we can teach our, our grandchildren. And uh, Lord, uh, that uh, we would have the ability to be able to share the gospel with our co-workers. And, and that, Lord, that, that we would desire to have a greater and better understanding of that word so that others might grow in their own relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. But we pray for us as a church. May we do that which is pleasing in your sight. May you develop us. May you mature us. Uh, may we be a people that are eager to pass on the word of God to the next generation and the generation after that. May you use us for the work of the gospel, each of us being instruments of your grace. Thankful, Lord, that you saved us and you have gifted us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.